0: The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take a personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you.
1: Welcome to Stocktake. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is Research Director Nathan Bell. Hey, Nathan. Hi, Gaurav. And with us also is analyst uh, John Addis. Analyst, founder, editor. And Life of the, the party. Moment, cripple. Yeah. and cripple yes (laughs) all those things in in maybe different orders john how are you feeling
0: i'm pretty good thanks pretty good yeah considering
1: Uh, yeah i had
0: my hit replaced two weeks ago and i'm walking around just about uh going to the toilet is interesting but other than that absolutely fine good To hear, you won't uh, hear the stuff anywhere else, folks.
1: no This is riveting stuff. We probably lost half the audience just there. <laughs> right. when, you mentioning your toilet trips is, is <laughs> gone after that.
2: <laughs> That's right. This is my near term future, so it's disappointing to hear it already. You know, I was
1: thinking the same thing. I was looking at John thinking, geez, it's going to be 15 years' us? time. Oh, I know <laughs> the long term, who wants it? Um. Nate, you've been you've had a few things on your mind. Actually, we've stopped your ranting so you could keep it on for the podcast. So this is your chance. We're going to clear the deck and uh, tell us all your thoughts. I mean, we've been sitting around waiting for a market correction. Stanley Druckenmiller um, scared the pants off everyone several times, um, warning of a market collapse. As a fund manager, what are your thoughts about that? Do you sit there holding cash? How do you react to to fear?
2: Uh, I just recorded a webinar for our growth fund that's doing its secondary offer, and I think I added
1: more fuel to the
2: fire, scaring everyone that investment was going broke by accident.
1: True to form, Nathan. <laughs> nice one, yes.
2: Yeah, I was just trying to make the point that, uh, you know, you want a nice, healthy business behind the funds, and um, I think I intimated that Investmart was in, had financial issues, but uh, certainly not the case. Um, just talking about, you know, how we grow our business and um, by having these secondary offers and, uh, you know, some of the investments and we want to make in the business and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so that probably hasn't helped the mood of anyone listening to that. But uh, I, I just thought, you know, I know for a lot of our members and, and investors have been with us for a very long time. They've been through lots of cycles. But uh, it's a really difficult environment at the moment because, I mean, the market never gives you what you want. I, I get the sense from a lot of investors that there's almost like a sense of injustice that the market hasn't fallen and we've had this big broad buying opportunity. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, when you go through them, they're never as fun as what you make out in your mind. It's like, there, it means something's gone really wrong and you've got a lot to think about. And there's probably stress from other places, like losing your job or, uh, you know, friends losing their job. And, you know, that whole thing where they say, What's the difference between a depression and a recession? And depression's when you lose your job. Uh, so so and the other thing i've been thinking about too is just over time the market is very resilient it actually takes a lot to knock the market over um but what i find personally a little bit frustrating at the moment i, I don't really get frustrated i'm i'm yeah you know, i don't like seeing my own personal wealth go down with frontier at the moment that's not fun seeing that thing go down 10% every day and mm-hmm. another little software company owned in canada looks like it's going broke so um so i actually <laughs> feel like i'm having my depression um, at home but it's really got not a lot to do with um you know, sort of general advice and the funds at IO and whatnot, but um, but I think you've got a few options at the moment, so one or two options that you haven't had for quite a while, which is to earn a somewhat decent return in fixed income or just you know in a bank account and I know you know friends of mine are just moving their money around for like Macquarie's cash account, for example, where I think you get four percent up for your first quarter of a million dollars so I know that's not it may not people may not want to open up new accounts under all their sort of different you know, family trusts or personal names or whatever, just for the sake of an extra percent, which they might invest in the market at any time. Um, But I just think there's those sort of things to think about. Like, obviously, US bonds are yielding much more than Aussie bonds. But if you buy them, obviously, you open yourself up to currency risk. So, you know, probably not the area I would go to, but it's an option that hasn't been there for a while. Um, But you actually may work out that you, you know, the bonds go, if if interest rates do go down, then, um, you know, that's good for bond prices. There might be capital gains there still, um, yeah, you know, that's just one, one option. But I think the other one is everyone wants to, you know, this is a great quote um, by this UK fund manager. Uh, I think it's something Andrew Bolton, Andrew, like Anthony Bolton. Anthony um, Bolton. Anyway, not, definitely
0: not Michael Bolton.
2: And he said um, investors always want to do today what they should have done yesterday. Mm. And, and I love that quote because, you know, we all want to have bought REA Group 10 years ago and CSL 10 years ago. And we all, Think, oh, you know, we're gonna get this big broad buying opportunity, and then we can load up the portfolio, buy all these great companies. And and the thing is, you get into the downturn when it comes, and all of a sudden there's just other things happening, and there's other cheap stocks, and your mind goes, oh, this is much cheaper, and you end up spending time on that. And particularly as a professional like us, you know, when you go in that period, and you've got all your stocks to cover in the newsletter and funds to get the stocks right and whatever. There's there's a whole lot going on, and it's hard to do new research. So. You know, this nice idea we have in our head about doing all these nice, sensible, well-thought-out things sort of get thrown out the window in a way when the real pressure comes. But to get in those, you think about what it actually takes to get share markets low, you know, with cheap share prices. Like some, like the GFC was like a, I think a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I don't think we'll ever see share prices that cheap again, not in my lifetime, unless the actual financial system completely comes apart this time, which you know is a non-zero risk. But you, But you can't sit there and invest for that. You've got to invest with you know some sort of normalcy in markets, and so I think you've got a few options at the moment. If you know if you're young and you're wanting to take the risk, like I'd be spending all my time in smaller micro caps because it's just the where I think there's genuine value, and there's a lot less people covering those stocks now. Um, you know funds are going out of business. There's institutional um, big financial institutions that used to have analysts that cover small cap don't cover it anymore. You know, no one wants to own micro caps in this environment. And, um, anything cyclical like there's all these sort of reasons why people aren't covering them um, but if you look at the index and maybe you've owned an index fund and you're happy with that like you've got to lower your return expectations i know even you and I igor have talked about putting a sell on bhp like the, yeah. if the iron ore miners are expensive and the banks are also pretty expensive and they haven't three of them of the big four have, have produced virtually no capital gains since 2002 which i find incredible um so they're not gross stocks and you lucky like get the dividend yield you know plus your franking credits over time so there's like 40 percent of the market we don't want to own a REITs because they're just not very interesting and they've got problems of their own there's another 20 percent of the index CSL 7 so there's about like 70 or three quarters of the market and none of those you know CSL is actually funnily enough <laughs> the most interesting out of all of those um, but they're not the places you want to look but the question is are you going to be happy to take the let's just call it six or seven percent annualized return or do you want to try and chase the nine or ten percent plus and how do you go about doing that um, but I just think the one in this Miller I think alluded to I think the one thing he said at the moment is the one thing you don't want is you just don't want to have one big idea or like real compulsion and absolute faith in one or two big ideas he said like it's just not the time for that It's just so complex out there at the moment. So many things could go wrong. And I I just think this is why people are sick of hearing it. But, you know, our approach is we've got 80 to 85% of the funds or portfolios invested, a little bit of cash for a couple of new ideas. We're surely going to get – we always get two or three new ideas each year, even in good times. Um, And that's the way we play it. So if markets go up, we do fine. If they go down, we've got a little bit of cash. But we own great businesses, and they're going to be fine over the next decade. Um, So it's pretty boring stuff, but – I just think a lot of people are feeling so much pressure to do something and maybe they've got cash or and they're just wondering what to do and that's sort of really the basis for the conversation.
1: I can speak from my personal experience, Nath, that um, over the last 12, 18 months, because I've had those coal stocks deliver really stellar returns, I haven't had the emotional damage of falling stock prices and the carnage that's gone through small caps. And my friends who manage small caps or invest in small caps they are broken individuals. You can see it on their faces. You can you hear it in their words. I'm <laughs> just putting on the facade. The, yeah, <laughs> I'm broken on the inside. I can tell you. I think that's something we we don't give enough attention to is the um is the psychological resilience you get from um from not going to or not having to endure um all that pain and 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 I think. Uh, hopefully for most members or for some members at least it, it puts you in a in a different frame of mind i mean i you know we've saved up dividends we're sitting on i'm sitting on the most cash i've ever sat on in my investing career and mm-hmm. i'm quite happy to see the market fall and 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 wait for it you know i feel absolutely no pressure at the moment and um there's plenty of ideas to do come you through do you so think
0: you would feel the same way if you hadn't invested no. so much in the cost?
1: well this is this is uh, this is where i was coming to um during the the gfc i had um, luckily, uh, sold everything I owned to buy a property. And that was just complete, um, luck, but I remember thinking I would have been completely wiped out because mm. I was in stupid things and, um, I had had debt at that stage. And I was just, um, uh, in, you know, it would, it would have been a disaster for me. And then when we had the, um, the, the big commodity crash of, well, I think it was 2011, 2012, that was also difficult. I lost a fair bit of money then. And I remember the psychological damage. It was hard to, to buy things again and to put cash to work because you're so scarred from losing money all the time. And I'm just I'm aware that that's not my mentality at the moment. I think that's a real advantage. And you really want to, you know, if, if you share that position um, and if you haven't worn the scars and you're not all damaged and, and broken the way so many investors are, that is an advantage and make sure, make sure you utilize that. I mean, one of my top priorities this year is to, it, is to make sure I I use my psychological advantage and the spare cash I've got and put that to work at the right time. It's no good being, um, being what all- What happens uh, if the right time doesn't arrive?
0: What happens if the well, right it, time was six months ago?
1: It doesn't have to be the perfect time. It just has to be, or it doesn't have to be the right time. Just put it to work, right? I think that's a good disclaimer there, John. It doesn't have to be the right time. No, I'm not mm-hmm. trying to sit around waiting for the right time. No. It's just looking for the right opportunity, I suppose. Right. No. yeah so I feel like
2: the, I don't, I don't know whether this is right or not, but it's just my feeling is that the the wealthier you are, the more easy it is to be patient. And I find when you you know you're not I don't know, just a retiree who's sitting at home and the house is paid for and they've got their stock portfolio, there's really no pressure for them to do anything because there's a big difference between I think how you invest it probably shouldn't be, but um, you know you only need to get rich once. And how you manage your money once you're wealthy, you know whatever number you think that is, but um, it's a lot yeah, easier to, to get r-
0: rich once, as long as you don't become poor
2: twice. <laughs> <laughs> referring to divorces. <laughs> the, no, yes, uh, no. <laughs> When you um, when you're trying to grow your money and the, you just feel this innate pressure to mm. to be growing and doing something, uh, uh, it's, it's much much harder. Uh, and, and I even find that. Um, just, you know, I'm trying to get somewhere. Like, I don't own a house in Sydney, and the, you know, you money is only worth what it is in terms of real estate. and, You, mm. you know, it's like if you live on a small island somewhere, you know, a million dollars Australian is a huge amount of money, but in Sydney, it doesn't even get you a two-bedroom apartment. Mm. Um, so you just keep seeing these property prices going way up, and it's like my portfolio is going way down. This is like, you know, I, I just get frustrated. Like, I'm never going to own a house, and and then I just give up, and then I don't care anymore. But You know, I'm I'm trying to get somewhere. I just, I'm at a stage in my life now. I've never really cared whether I owned a property or not in the past, but I'd actually like to have my own place now and stop just sticking around with the rents and whatever Mm. and just have a place in the suburb that I like where I can spend the rest of my life. And, you know, it's actually a bit frustrating that I can't do it. It's the first time in my life where I've really wanted to do something and I just, I can't do it. I just have to give up too much of my portfolio to go and do that. And it's not a sacrifice I'm willing to make. But, but you know, I sort of feel this innate pressure to get my portfolio going. And here it is getting absolutely smashed. But, you know, I thought I'd actually prepared for this downturn mm. pretty well. Like I had mm. lots of cash. I um, I didn't sell any Frontier shares, which is one mistake I've made. And I knew it was going to get smashed. Uh, like I was telling people, like, this thing's going to get absolutely hammered in a downturn. But I thought if, it, if the downturn doesn't come and there's no big broad buying opportunity and we have our soft landing and all the rest of it, and at least I own one stock that I think will go up quite a lot in that time. But, it, you know, it's actually turned out exactly how I thought it would. And, and it's probably even worse and it's probably getting worse. And um, so it's it's been so, tough financially, but I just, that's a very, you know, I would hope no one else is investing the same way I am.
1: It, it's a good point, actually. It's something I've learned much later in, in my investing career that the, you know, the, the scars you wear financially are nothing compared to, to the scars you wear psychologically and, and looking after your, your mind, um, during a downturn and, and positioning your portfolio. So you're in a position to, to, to not act irrationally or act, act in any sort of silliness. It's really important. And I'm I trying and, and use, and, and try and put myself in a position to make good decisions, um, rather than, um, try and have the, the optimal, um, you know, financial, cash allocation that's the way i'm trying to think of it now is right i want to mentally be in the right spot to make right decisions Mm. more so than trying to have the the fine cash balance or the optimal um allocation to this or that stock then it's probably experience that lets you do that but um that's really surprised me
0: i feel a bit more sort of philosophical towards all of this stuff now where you know you i'm kind of happier to let not, I feel easy, it's easier for me to let things go. So yes. I bought a few small cap stocks that just got utterly blown up, and I did sell some down before the massive blow ups. But mm. you know, I lost a reasonable amount of money. But do I look back on that and go, I really shouldn't have done that? Should I beat myself up? Well, actually, no, you know, that was the nature of it. I knew what I was getting into. Mm. My probably biggest regret over the past year or so was not buying Facebook and Google mm. um, in single digit PRs. that. That's probably my biggest regret, but I suppose my attitude towards being wealthy is kind of it's it's kind of different. I suppose in that I don't feel as though we live in a society where people sort of judge everybody on wealth, and that has its own problems, and that adds to the pressure when you have something and then your portfolio goes down by twenty five percent, and you feel that loss aversion. Mm -hmm. Personally. like if you do have your own house, I think it makes it a big difference. You know, like psychologically, that gives you a sense of security that you don't get from any other kind of assets. So I think that is important, though, if you can do that. Um, but in terms of having, you know, lots of free cash to do what you want with, well, yeah, it's okay. But, you know, business class travel is good. You know, like that, that's a really a, a big advantage of being wealthy mm-hmm. and, and being able to eat out and eat good food is pretty mm-hmm. good. But everything else, you know, like, the very rich people I know don't seem to have any better quality of lives that I do. And in some ways they have more complicated lives because all the kids are fighting over the assets and they're constantly asking them for money and stuff like that. So I think if you can bring, uh, what would I call it? Um, a more relaxed rather than grasping attitude towards money then dealing with periods like this are a little
1: bit easier. It helps. Let me give you Australia.
2: A, let me give you a little philosophical story, no, which no. I'm I'm struggling with at the moment, and I know how irrational this is, but um, there's a little Canadian software company I've owned. I've wrote it up on in the um, on the website ages ago, and it um, it's just not signing up new clients fast enough, and it's got a, some debentures that come due in a couple of years, and I can just see now that the People who own these debentures are just gonna steal all the equity in this business, but it's too late to get out. Like this thing's been crunched already, it's really illiquid. Um, and that was actually part of the reason I bought it, was because there's some big fund managers that bought into it that were gonna fix it up whatever smart people anyway. Um, there's another stock I've talked about before called Celsius, which is a drinks company. And a friend of right. mine actually said he's buying some cans, so they must be getting around Australia now. And it's um it's sort of a version of Monster Beverage, but for yeah, a healthy version. Trick, yeah. Yeah. And so um, so I bought these shares. Now, I put one-tenth of the amount that I put into this Optiva, this little software company, and Optiva looks like it's on the way to zero. And I, so if I had to put the amount of money I put in Optiva into Celsius at the price I paid, um, I think it's only been two and a half years, maybe three years since I bought it, um, that amount of money, which is uh, a couple hundred thousand bucks, would have been worth over six million dollars. Whoa! <laughs> and uh, I'm sitting here with my portfolio just getting belted, and uh, you know, the same analysis that I put into Optiva was the exact same analysis I put into Celsius or hmm. to Frontier or to CSL or to everything, and. Yeah. I think the you know the one thing I've just got wrong is the portfolio allocations. Mm. And like, it's just killed me. And it's a really boring topic to talk about. Mm. But it's um it's where the rubber meets the road and it makes all the difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. It it's a hard one to get right, right? I mean, mm. in, in if the outcome had been different for Celsius, you would have been patting on your back and saying how well you you did, mm. getting the allocation right on that. Mm. You only really know in hindsight, I think. It's it's yeah. a hard one. I struggle with that as well. I think it's really hard.
2: I think I just said it before about Drucker Miller, but he said in that recent interview that this was the most difficult period he'd ever seen because there's just no clear opportunities. And the only thing he was, uh, and even he held this pretty loosely and he changes his mind from day to day, but he was short the US dollar. But Mm. it's funny, I I see shorting the US dollar because of the financial issues in America, but I look around the rest of the world and everyone's got them. It's just that they had a bigger blow up with their housing market than some other places did. I mean, Canada and Australia haven't had that, but they're, you know, the banks are up to their ears in it and you look on other statistics and they're far worse than what these other countries look like before they went into the GFC. Um, So I'm not saying we're going back into that, but it's just, there really aren't any easy options at the moment. And that's why my default, you know, what I've been doing with the funds is just been seen some of the results that recently have just been incredible. Like we're supposed to, all the media pages are filled with all this bad news. And I'm just seeing uh, like houses in our area, um, which they had 1.9 million on recently. There's just nothing to buy. There's just like one, one property in one month in one suburb, entire mm-hmm. suburb to sell, and people have been paying 2.7 million for them. Like it's just because it's the only thing, and they're sick of looking, sick of renting, and they just don't give a shit. They just want this over with. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I see like Resmed, like 30% growth in revenue and profit, mm-hmm. like stunning mm-hmm. result. REA Group putting its prices up from anywhere from 12 to 15 to 20%. You know, stunning numbers. And so just, you know, maybe just reaffirms buying the quality stuff. But it's just, I think that's what's frustrating people is that we're supposed to, you're seeing all this bad news and you read the media every day and it's just awful stuff to read. And yet you're waiting for these opportunities to buy these great business and they're just producing gobsmacking numbers. And mm. it's hard to weigh up the stocks versus the the economy, if you like. But that's that's a great point because it's it's all about stock picking. You know, it's got nothing to do with the economy. We're not sitting here buying Boral or CSR or something where the, the economy really is tied into it and interest rates really do matter. You know, we're buying very different businesses and we're talking about buying great businesses. You know, everything's tied to the economy to some extent, but certainly the best business in Australia, they're just, they're well in control of their destinies and they're showing it.
1: Mm. Gents, I just got back from the... US. I went to the um, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting for the first time. In fact, it was my first time in the US and the first time at, at Berkshire. Am I allowed to say that I was a little bit underwhelmed by <laughs> the whole Berkshire experience? I just thought... I, I fell uh, asleep how by 11am the be, first time I went. <laughs> how
0: could it not be? I mean, it's so hyped up. How could it not
1: be? It's so like hyped away? up. Yeah, look, I had a lot of fun. I went with some friends and we had a lot of fun in the US together. Um, and I met some interesting people um at the meeting and some of the events around the meeting itself that was that was great but the actual seven hours in a room with charlie and and warren not my best times i actually found it quite dull um i found the questions they about the half a dozen questions were, answer, were asked by teenagers they were just so um so boring we've had we, we've seen all these answers to these questions before i just I, I'm not quite sure why this festival atmosphere continues, um, and I don't. I think we expect too much from a bunch of 90-year-olds. Mm. Um, it's, well, it's probably kind my of like last Hillsong
0: time. for value investors.
1: That's exactly what it is. And I was very uncomfortable with the um, with the cultish um, atmosphere. Mm. But they the people cheer every word they say. I thought a lot of the answers were flippant and um, and not Going very a bit deep. Far here now, Gora right. <laughs> uh, and. Well, you know there were some specific questions asked for about specific stocks from shareholders of Berkshire, and I didn't feel as though Charlie Munger in particular, he seems to get cheered for being an angry old curmudgeon. I just think um you know he's playing a character almost at this point. I thought he was a he was a caricature. I was really disappointed. you know it's 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 kind of funny when when an old guy gets up and says an angry one-liner in a you know in a gruff voice, but you know, like I, I just felt as though this was an AGM and the some of the answers if if it was two other individuals talking about another business. Everyone would be really annoyed about the answers being handed down. And, and these guys, I think they get a free pass because they're a bunch of cheerleaders and they're clapping every word they say and cheering everything they do. And I just think that's a really dangerous setup. And I was quite uncomfortable with the whole thing. Yeah, Last uh, time I did. went
2: was the first year that they uh, had it online. And Because yeah. uh, you're in a stadium and if you're six foot tall, like you don't really fit in these tiny chairs and your legs are squeezed up and you're in there from really early in the morning. There's this poor bug, I don't know what time you got in there, Goro. But in my mm. previous job, the rule was the youngest analyst had to go and save eight seats. <laughs> so you'd have to get up <laughs> at like 3 or 3.30 in the morning, Yeah, get in there at 5 or whatever time the doors open mm. and then save eight seats until we come along when we feel like it. Like it's just everyone's trying to get these seats in the main stadium because there's, mm-hmm. there's breakout areas now anyway, but you don't want to be in there yeah. watching that. You want to be actually at least in the stadium.
1: We were learning and, at uh, 5 a.m.
2: I'd, I'd, I'd had enough by you know 11 or 12 o'clock and yeah. at lunchtime I just went back to our crappy hotel and I watched the, the afternoon session lying on the bed.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it seems pointless to me. I, I, saw, I went to the Westco AGM probably about 12, 13 years ago. Yeah. It was probably one of the best days of my life and that was only because Tottenham were on the verge of getting Champions League (laughs) and had to beat Man City and Peter Crouch scored a header in like with five minutes to go and got fourth spot and I saw it in a pub right next door to the West Co AGM, which showed English football, served English beer and did sausages and mash for breakfast. It was an unbelievable day And the worst part of it was the, the West Co AGM where all the sandwiches disappeared in 10 minutes because value investors like value investors
1: fee. yeah <laughs> yeah i noticed that as well they uh, gave and I, it with- I
0: resolved then I thought, okay i know everybody wants to go to this stuff but it just wasn't for me
1: yeah yeah i think you're early on that piece um they gave away some free food um at the agm and yeah a bunch of value investors most of these people are worth millions i might add yeah all scrammaging for um free american muffins geez the food in the u.s and and may i say um with the grace of respect that Omaha is a shithole <laughs> like it was just it's it may be the ugliest city i have ever seen I, I was there for a couple of days did not see one pretty building one nice tree it, it was horrible and the food the rent's is, is edible yeah it's cheap it better be it's the only thing that's cheap because everything else was super expensive uh-huh. um anyway. the
2: one thing yeah. it does these days is there's yeah. a lot of Uh, investors get together on the sidelines and have their own little things but yes uh, yes. unless you know those guys and you're not part of it then you miss out on them but uh, but a lot of those people just get together you know most people would be from new york anyway um or the eastern seaboard boston so you know they get together in their own things anyways Mm -hmm. so it's always been a question whether people would still come um to see them after warren and charlie were no longer there and uh, I suspect it, it. They will, but it won't be as as big because I th- think people will still be there to catch up and reminisce. And mm. for a lot of people, that's probably their most yeah yeah you know, thing they look forward most to most on the, the, on the calendar.
1: With, yeah, without yeah. A doubt, that's the most the most fun part is actually just hanging out with like-minded people. But you can mm. do that without the five a.m. wake up and the yeah. seven-hour <laughs> meeting. You know, look one mm. one point that did strike me was that you know they've got a lot of um the Berkshire businesses with stands at a very large convention center and you can go around and see all the things that um, Berkshire owns. And it really struck me that we have this idea of Buffett as owning these really high-quality businesses. And most of the companies that had uh, presented at the convention, well, I would say mediocre or average businesses. And it really got me thinking about um, our definition of quality. You know, I think it can be very narrowly based and, and we tend to think that a quality business is one... It has the biggest moat possible, and that's the only definition at all. But Buffett owns things like, um, I, didn't, I didn't know this, but he owns Brooks, which is, I think, a, a third-rate um, sneaker brand. Um, Russell Athletics, which is a second-tier um, brand. Um, Fruit of the Loom, which is a cotton-on um, replica. And uh, this business that makes these um, squishy toys, which I would have thought has zero um, moat around it. But um, all those businesses, they perform reasonably well. And I just think sometimes that we get caught up about um, having, you know, the beautiful set of financials and a, and a great big moat and often management and reinvestment opportunities and, um, and uh, the runway, the growth runway ahead can be, can be substitutes for, you know, the, the big moaty business. And they probably have been for Berkshire. Hmm. Some of those businesses
2: might have looked a lot better 30 years ago when they were bought and what they look today, you know, especially Brooks. I mean, there's yep. lots of other running shoes. In the last couple of years, what's those Allbirds or whatever? And there's another yeah, couple yeah. lighter shoes ever. And All technology's changed. You know, you can make different, much different sneakers to what you used to. They're made out of much different mm. things. So
1: Absolutely. You sort of look through that lens of, uh, this
2: looks terrible today, but maybe 30 years ago, it was a bit more unique." And people were getting into running, and maybe there was room for for Russell Athletics and those things after the
1: the Nikes and Adidas, which maybe weren't quite so mm. dominant back then. I think he's still doing well from The returns have been okay, but just the um, yeah, just just not what I expected to see there. That's all, John. You of, should, sorry, can I just say something? Yep. Um, the one thing that I think
2: is quite interesting at the moment, and um, I'm careful. <laughs> I don't want this to come back on our returns at some point because uh, you know you don't want to be calling the kettle black. Or um, this is something in Morgan Hounsell writes these articles, and, and I love reading them. And uh, sometimes I paste them somewhere, but. Um, but he talked about sometimes when people, um, you can actually get quite nasty when you hear fund managers talk about other fund managers mm-hmm. and, or other investors. And he was talking about, he said that one thing he's realized as he's got older is that a lot of pe- the things that people complain about is just actually, these people are just either one got a different strategy or two, mm-hmm. a different timeline. You know, they're just trying to make money faster or, you know, whether they're more tradey or, you know, that sort of thing. And so what we're actually complaining about is just that they're not the same as ourselves. Um, but just one thing I've noticed lately, I've, I can't remember where I talked about this before, but um, we've just seen it, the devastation I've seen on a lot of funds that were riding so high up until 2021, mm-hmm. the, they've just been absolutely demolished. Um, but when you've got a fairly short-term record, because I follow a lot of these small hedge fund managers in the US, because I just like hearing about unique ideas and you know they cover some microcaps and stuff, stuff I've never heard of. And actually I haven't had any good ideas out of there for a while, a long while, which probably shows you how much value's out there. But um, but I was amazingly, and this is sort of where Berkshire Hathaway's sort of involved, but there's all these great investor names that are absolutely revered. And Berkshire can't, you know, even Munger says, like, we, we can't do anything better than the index. Our business is just so big, it's that's all he expects. But you know, if you're if you're one of those berkshire billionaires and you're not going to sell your stock you're going to be happy with that and you're not going to create a big tax problem or whatever but interestingly tweedy brown was one that i just remember when i first mm. started becoming into investing was this huge name mm. and you may remember i can't remember what year it was maybe it was 13 14 15 somewhere around there was the um big bi- uh, pharmaceutical company valiant that um mm. i'm pretty sure tweedy brown invested in them i may have mixed up i don't think so Anyway, um, well, it might have been Ruan and Carniff, and so I've mixed them two up. But anyway, the point's the same. The These these guys that had these just incredible track records, and I think it was Ruan that when Buffett closed his shop, you know, way back when, um, and then you know before he got into Berkshire, uh, he said, like, invest with, you know, Ruan. This, is, this guy's great. He invests like me, and, you know, it's all good and done superbly. And then they all come unstuck um, with Valiant Pharmaceuticals, which basically came up with the ploy that you can just – go and buy um, other smaller pharmaceutical companies cut out the marketing skyrocket your prices and uh, and don't do any capex like don't do any R&;D and that worked for a little while and then I, I, I again I can't remember which one it was but it got to some the stock got to something like 30 or 35 percent of their fund and one of the older names there that you would think would be the most sensible and conservative names said no no, we need to keep this. We need to keep this, and then it blew up spectacularly. And it's yeah. actually, I think Netflix had a um, story on it, and John yeah. Hempton was on there talking about the short case and whatnot. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and the returns of that fund now, even though it's been around for thirty-five or forty years, like if we have a bad, you know, six-month period like we have recently, like that moves our since inception numbers around quite a bit in the fund, our funds because they haven't been around very long. But it takes a lot to move around the since inception numbers for a fund that's been around for three or four decades. Mm. Right. And I look, at, I was looking at the returns for Tweety Brown the other night, and I just remember when I first came into investing with Greg, and just ah oh, Tweety Brown. I don't think it was Greg talking about this necessarily, but just all the stuff I was reading about Buffett and whatnot was I oh, Tweedy Brown this and Tweety Brown that. But their their returns, I think, since the early seventies now are like five point six percent. And so I said, I keep so I'm sitting here and thinking about all these people getting frustrated with their returns mm. at the moment, and even my personal money getting torched. And I was even thinking about my own money and going, geez, you know, frontier, you know, I should have sold some and just carried a smaller positioning because what's happened is exactly what you said was going to happen and whatever I'm castigating myself. And then I think about Sean who's the CEO and founder of this business who he's hit a home run with meme, and he's hit a home run with everything he's touched so far, but the currency is the only problem here. And it's just smashed yeah. the value in Australian dollar terms, but he has not chosen. He has one big time. Every time he's touched something, and his value, his shareholding in the business has gone from 40 million to 10. And yeah. so mine losses are pretty big, um, but they're not actually from what I paid, aren't that big, but from what I had, uh, it's come down a huge amount. And yet he's this guy who's lost about $30 million. Um, and, and then it's like you sit here as the investor going, oh, Frontier's got this, no one wants to own it, all. it's going down and whatever. And you go, well, actually, what's going on in this business at the moment? And what is, why is this guy, I see him on Instagram. Like, with a big smile on his face and getting around, and he's not getting paid that much in frontier, and he's <laughs> this guy's not worth a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars or anything. um you know he's I feel like I'm under pressure, but it's self-imposed pressure, and I'm thinking like what's why is this guy smiling? Like <laughs> why is he so comfortable watching his go, yeah, go yeah, from man. forty to ten like yeah, yeah. it's um, it's
0: kind of a law, Nathan. You can't be miserable on Instagram. I don't know if you <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's it. Hey John, uh, we we've got fifteen minutes left, so maybe we can move on to.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that um, at that Berkshire conference, um, they spoke a little bit about AI, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. So Mungo, I think, quite said quite um, surprisingly that he thinks a lot of the hype around AI is probably unjustified, and um, he thinks it's unwarranted. I just Justified wanted to get in what soon. He didn't really elaborate on that. I mean, he speaks, the guy speaks in sentences, in single sentences. So Mm. goodness knows what he means, but um, I want to get your thoughts on it. I mean, this is probably the amount of hype I've seen around AI is probably the equivalent of the hype we saw in 99 around the internet. Yeah. And, um, you know, we could see a a corresponding boom in AI stocks. We just don't seem to have any on the ASX listed, not Mm -hmm. many that I know of anyway. Mm. Give us your thoughts on on where we are on AI. I think you, you, you had some thoughts on Google in particular that I'd be interested to, to hear.
0: Well, I should preface everything by saying that I really know nothing about this.
1: Oh, um, good. <laughs> excellent.
0: I've read a lot about it. Uh, I have a friend who's a professor of AI at, at mm. RMIT. Whenever she talks to me about it, I feel as though she's talking in Portuguese or something. I have the same sense of confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but Nick and I and, and Nathan to a lesser extent have been talking about this a lot in, in the context of Google and what what I think is interesting about that situation is that I've always thought that AI is about you take large data sets and you apply massive processing power mm-hmm. and you find all of these relationships within the data that allows you to then make some conclusions about what's being asked of the chat bot when you are when you type something into chat GPT or something. Mm. And that compute power was really a barrier to entry. So OpenAI, I'm not sure what the number is, but OpenAI have taken billions of dollars as an investment from Microsoft and they've largely used all of that uh, as server power. And so I've always thought of that as a competitive advantage, mm. a little bit like data centers. So we've got the second part of the Amazon story coming out in the next week or so. Uh, where we look at AWS and it's the same kind of thing, you know, that it's so expensive to get into the cloud business. You can see this at Next DC as well, is that most people don't, most companies just do not have the capital or can't access the capital in order to establish a position in it. So if the the, the cloud computing companies we've got now are highly likely to be the cloud computing we've got in 10 or 20 years time, I think. Mm -hmm. And I applied that kind of logic, which I thought was sound to, to AI as well. And in the same way that I think Google and Meta and uh, Microsoft have done and OpenAI has done. So one of the interesting things that's happened in the past few months is that Meta, Facebook, um, have their own AI models. And unsurprisingly, one of them was leaked onto the internet. Mm. And you think, well, yeah, what can people do with that? You know, like you need a massive machine to just hold that level of data and you need huge computing power to process it. And what happened was within within a few weeks, people were running scaled-down models of large language models, uh, LLM AI, on things like Raspberry Pis and Pixel phones and coming up with results that probably weren't quite as good as what Google or um, OpenAI might do. But but the convenience of having it locally, say, on your iPhone or on your laptop um, massively outweighed the fact that the results were maybe 5% worse. Mm. So when was it? Let me just have a look. So I've got the memo here. Memo came out a couple of weeks ago uh, from Google internal memo that was leaked called we have no moat. So uh, which said uh, we've done a lot of looking over our shoulders, open AI, who will cross the next milestone, what will, will be the next move the uncomfortable truth is we aren't positioned to win this arms race and neither is open ai while we've been squabbling a third faction has been quietly eating our lunch and that's open source mm. and they go on to list all the different things that are happening in open source and this thing is now out in the wild and there's people in garages with a few servers stuck together who are doing amazing things in romania and um that's only going to accelerate the pace of change. And um the number of products that we're likely to get. And I think that before we started looking at this, we probably looked at Google and thought this was a buy. <laughs> and we only put it down as a whole because this is a it is a fundamental threat to um their search business. And I think Charlie Munger's probably wrong. I don't think this is a fad. I think this is every bit as important as as the internet was 20 years ago. Maybe more so. Maybe more so.
1: So just to clarify, John, you're saying you reckon that um, OpenAI may not be able to monetize what it's done so far, and in fact, yeah. the providers of AI may just spawn more competition. That's right.
0: So Google, the the, the, the argument that this is made in this memo is mm. that we're better off letting a thousand flowers bloom and taking mm. advantage of that, and doing say, what we did with Android mm. and having this open source model and seeing what it produces rather than trying to control it ourselves because it's fundamentally out of control now
1: i always thought Um, the because the um the inputs the the data that you train your model on is so important that would that would be the secret source, and and that would create an incentive for the googles and the um and the open ais to hold tightly onto their uh, um sources
0: so this is the, the key paragraph in that yep. sense. So, so while our models still hold a slight edge in terms of quality, mm. the gap is closing astonishingly quickly. Open source models are faster, more customizable, more private and pound for pound more capable. They are doing things with $100 and 13 billion parameters that we struggle with at $10 million not dollars and 540 billion parameters.
2: Mm.
0: So they're doing more with much, much smaller data sets and smaller parameters and producing almost as good results.
1: Okay, maybe don't buy Google just yet.
0: No, no. (laughs) I mean, there's still lots of things about Google that are are, are there to love. You know, like we presuppose that just because the technology gets better Mm. um, that we'll switch. But, you know, most most Google searches don't involve advertising. That can easily be handled with a chatbot Google's yeah. AI products might be behind chat GPTs, but they could probably close that gap within a few months if they wanted to, if they worked hard enough at it. Um, and if they went open source, they could probably do it more quickly. Um, it's only with the shopping-related or, to say, the insurance claims-related um, answers where they will have to combine sort of display ads as you see in google shopping you know when you see all those images across the top you can Mm. scroll you know across Mm. i bought a walking stick like yesterday which hopefully will be (laughs) delivered soon so i can get rid of the crutches you know it's things like that which could be answered with a chatbot so what's the best walking stick under 30 dollars and you Mm. just get a product and a link to it it's not as lucrative as having 20 different options each of which Google gets a trailing or affiliate marketing commission from by sending people off to these websites, plus, you know, the ad spend as well. So there is a threat there to its business long-term and it's a classic example of the innovators dilemma. I think Clay mm-hmm. Christians, uh, Christensen's innovative dilemma. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, that's really one to watch.
1: Can I just throw a, a book recommendation out there um, before we um, sign off? I finished reading chip wars by I mm. uh, can't remember. It's it's a famous book. You you'd know it if yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if you're interested. I've heard
0: in the it. guy interviewed a few times.
1: It's it, are you. Uh, have you read the book, John?
0: No.
1: I would caution you about reading it because it is so badly written. I think your head would fly off if you if you read it uh, um, that, out that of frustration. For me already. If you, don't, if you think it's badly written, then... yeah, it's badly written. Um, he jumps. But this all, is from
0: a guy who doesn't use apostrophes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he thinks
0: the book is badly written.
1: Doesn't have full
0: words. It <laughs> doesn't an, use vowels.
1: It's an amazing story, badly told. I think I think he mm. tells a story really poorly as well. But there's a, a fantastic tale there. It um it's frustrating that it's in the hands of this author who cannot write and cannot tell a, a good tale. Mm. But um but despite that, there are some really interesting tidbits. I think this the thing he does very well is explain some of the um, technical. Um, the deep technical aspects of of chip design and chip manufacture, and mm. I, I think most people will be absolutely stunned to know the um, the amount of innovation and accumulated human knowledge that's required to print a single chip. Um, yeah. He gave an example of um, of you know those um, uh, light printing chip machines that ASML make, um,
0: yeah, the Dutch company.
1: The Dutch company, yeah. So he's saying there's three separate innovations each of them took 30 years to to complete and so mm-hmm. there was you know a century of innovation almost yeah it had to come together and uh and to, to create that light printing technology and without that we wouldn't have the modern microprocessor. No. so those it, sort of things are quite interesting
0: it's kind of an, that is an interesting thing in an investing sense i think that because mm. there's this Reasoning, and you can maybe see this in Chinese thinking where you say, well, okay, we'll just produce a load of scientists mm. and we'll throw tens of billions of dollars at it and we'll mm. catch up. Mm. But it's kind of like you have to go through those 20 or 30 years yep. Yep. to learn all of those things and make all of those mistakes before yep. you get to that endpoint, which is, you know, a five-nanometer chip or something that does billions of transactions a second or something. It's it, it there's, needs to be that accumulation of knowledge and skill and expertise over time. It's kind of like a, a sort of super version of a jet engine. You know, there's just so much in it that mm. the only way of producing it is to have all of that corporate history that allows you to, to arrive at a certain point in the future. Absolutely. And unless you travel along that same path, mm. you don't mm. get there.
1: You know, I used to think science was this body of knowledge that was just out in the world, and it was only a matter of time before someone stumbled upon it. But mm-hmm. reading that book, and I think a few adjacent books as well, has really made me think that the role of in- that individuals play in innovation is just absolutely crucial. That entire yes. chip industry, all the innovation we rely on every day, is a product of maybe four or five people. Mm-hmm. And in And absent those four or five people, I wonder what would happen <laughs> no it's i think the role of individuals in in big science is just um is probably underrated and it's made me think a little bit more about that but yeah that's um that's one book the other one i'm reading at the moment which, which is actually beautifully written and, and wonderfully told is um lights out the history of um ge and oh really i went to that because i'm you know, as for twenty, my first twenty years as an investor, GE was the model business. You know, it the, was the stand
0: up. Everybody talked about Jack Welch. He was like absolutely the Warren Buffett of the business world. He was a- absolute saint. Could do no wrong.
1: And yeah. I admit that I like reading about fallen gods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, same here. Um, but this is this is a, a well told, well crafted book. I'm um, only about a third of the way through it, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it so far.
0: So, what what do you if you could pin, yeah. A reason for the downfall of GE, what would yeah. you put it down to?
1: So GE was actually, so keep in mind, I'm only a third of the way through, but it was riddled with um, accounting anomalies. Mm. I mean, every division, there was exaggerations, dodginess, and sometimes outright fraud. And the reason all that existed was because the pressure to, um, to perform, to not make any mistakes, and to um, always get your guidance on target If ever a manager produced a set of numbers that wasn't satisfactory, that's the end of their career. Failure was just not accepted at GE or any sort of um, disappointment was not accepted at GE. And that just created a whole bunch of incentives for bad behavior by the line managers. And that filtered all the way down. So I think this is, you know, we've we've kind of of paid out Munger a little bit, but one of his key insights is that incentives matter. You know, he often says, show me the incentives, I'll show you the behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been that's absolutely true, true here. Um, yeah. You know, the whole thing was just um, the whole business was run for the benefit of um, analysts and investors. And um, you can see that all the way through the way it was managed, the way products were created. Um, you can see that all the way through. Yeah. I, gave-
0: I, I, I don't, I haven't read that book. I've read a lot about Welsh over the years. Cause mm. like you, I am interested in fallen gods, but I could probably cast it in a slightly different light in that I would look at GE as one of the sort of post-child for the era of financialization. So this is an engineering company with a great history of technological advance that is taken yeah. over by accountants, yeah, and managed for financial reasons rather than for scientific or engineering-based reasons.
1: We haven't got into um, GE Capital and the role that played, but mm. I bet, I bet that's a big part of the next few chapters of the book yes yeah. I, I, I agree yeah yeah okay right nathan you've been um been quiet for a while <laughs> you, well, you did okay. talk a lot <laughs> at the beginning he's
0: like, just having a break just
1: keep in mind break. i just did a webinar right before
2: this i'm sure yeah, people are gonna have heard enough of me
0: uh, are you gonna head headbutt the microphone in a minute just fall asleep <laughs> in your in your seat <laughs> uh, i
2: All would right. just say uh just quickly um so yeah. we own a few of those companies in the international fund and i just come back to the drugs comments about just um, I'd say we're probably diversified against our ignorance. Nobody knows how this is going to play out. Mm. Um, But I think that key point is it's you feel like the internet's been around forever. It really hasn't been around very long. And Mm. now these uh, sort of early winners are now facing their biggest challenges ever here. And Mm. there may not be winners out of this, like you said. It might just be a bunch of losers. Mm. You know, the playing field's just much more level now. Because, um, you know, what can only be done by a couple of specialised companies now can be done by someone sitting at their own computer. So we don't have massive positions in any of those tech stocks, but we've got about, I think, 10% in total and sort of spread between three of the the big ones, Microsoft, Amazon and, and mm-hmm. Google. And that way, if they work out well over the next 10 years and capitalise, they'll, they'll do their bit for the fun. But um, the, the beauty of an international fund is you can be more diversified and still have the same returns and what's available in Australia.
1: You know, one more, yeah. One more, one more thought for me is that every time I read about um, a business that's imploded or a business that's a poor quality or that's been poorly run, I can't help think about um, Apple as the, um, as the comparator because I just think that is an amazing business that's run by the right people for the right reasons with the right incentives, and I, I don't think I've ever been as impressed with a business as I have been with Apple. I say that as Apple shareholder, but mind you, but, um, but you know, I was reading through the way GE was structured and the incentives all the way through GE, and um, you know, then comparing that to what I know about Apple, and it's just completely different. And I just think it's it's head and shoulders um, above almost any other business I've ever seen. That's my pitch for getting it in the fund. By the
0: way, I think you could look at AI as well. Going <laughs> back to that, and just say, well, at if you look at Siri, first yeah. sort of voice assistant, absolutely terrible, It's done nothing in ten years, maybe longer. Um, but it's got a how many how many users are in the Apple ecosystem now, Goro? It's got to be getting on for one point five billion. That's right, one and a Absol- half billion. There, absolutely yeah. locked in. Mm-hmm. Um, if this does go open source then it could be a huge boon for Apple. Mm. Everybody's got little chat GPTs on their phone. It um, mm. could, be, could be amazing for Apple, probably not so good for the rest of them. So yeah, probably shouldn't have sold two or three years ago.
1: <laughs> I think well, we sold down half of ours as well. I mean, we've, I still got some left though. I think that's <laughs> well, one of the benefits. Was always a big risk. Yeah, it is. It is a big risk. Sorry I think next, that's sorry.
2: one of the benefits of finding stocks early in their life cycle. Yeah. Is mm. once a company's gone up eight or nine times or you know, many more times that in those case of those stocks mm. is it's a lot easier um, to think about what you should do then rather than having missed all that. Yeah, and now right. coming in going, well, should I buy some now? Like it's Google looks really cheap on a statistical basis, but yeah. is this the the beginning of the end? Yeah. And that's a really hard decision to make. It's just a lot easier okay. when you've made 10 or 20 times your money.
1: <laughs> totally. So true. So true. Which brings us back to full circle. Put yourself in the right psychological frame to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. Gents, um, thanks for joining me. Um, Nathan, John, you, don't, you don't, don't get a chance to talk to you on the podcast very often. So it's a real pleasure. Thanks to both of you.
0: No, thank you. It's been good.
1: Thanks, boys. Apologies, um, to
0: Steph, for not getting this sorted out. Yeah, you know, sorry, my
1: fault. Technical error on my my behalf. I'm still. Gora has been out.
0: sending emails to himself all week. Apparently.
1: Haven't been all my emails haven't been sent this whole week, and I just. To be fair, to
0: though, him. it's not the only time it's happened. So <laughs> I would appreciate you letting me know as soon as you know that you're going to do a podcast. All right, that, that was um, Steph, everybody. That
1: was Steph. Yeah, tell oh, that, telling me that, off. It's
0: about time we, we introduced her uh, <laughs> to the to the membership.
1: She's so and, been and a
0: long-suffering were... staff member for decades now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I thought you'd finished. <laughs> <laughs> I can cut that out. I'm editing it out. No, no, just leave it, in leave it, leave it leave in. leave it in. No, it's good to have your voice the on the The audience will yeah. love that. Leave yeah. it in. Oh, shit. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> 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 Maybe just bleep out the swear words and we'll be fine. <laughs> no, that's okay.
0: It wouldn't be that if you stay at swear words. <laughs> no, that, that's
1: right. That's true. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, everyone, thanks for listening. Thanks, um,
0: everybody. See ya. Thanks,
1: Steph. Peace, boys.
0: Oh, sorry. <laughs> I had the volume way down low and I thought you were just jabbering on after the end of the podcast like you do and uh, jumped in at the wrong time. <laughs> sorry.
1: That was funny. It was funny. Don't worry about no, it. No, that was good, Steph.
0: Leave it in. <laughs> yeah, That's, yeah. You've got, you got to leave it in. I agree. Fantastic.